All right, this summer, we have been exploring a series called True Story. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time this summer, we are uh, working our way through the Old Testament, exploring some stories. Uh, now, when you come to the Old Testament, the Old Testament happened a very long time ago in a world very different than the one we live in. And so it can become, it can be challenging as you read these stories in the Old Testament to understand why God does certain things that he does, uh, why things play out the way they do. But when we do the work of digging into these stories, trying to understand the context, the culture, the world uh, that these stories took place in, uh, when we do that work, we have a much better understanding of God and the way that we are invited to live in the world today, thousands of years later. And so today we come to Exodus 32. Uh, now, prior to Exodus 32, the Israelite people, God's chosen people, who he has chosen to express himself to the entire world through them, uh, they were slaves in Egypt, and God sent plagues on the Egyptians, each plague correlating to a different Egyptian god, basically showing that Yahweh was superior to every single one of the Egyptian gods. And eventually, the Egyptians let the Israelites go. And they leave Egypt, and they make their way to the Red Sea, and the Egyptians change their mind. They start chasing after them. God parts the Red Sea so they can get across the Red Sea. And now they're in the desert. Uh, they are in the Sinai Peninsula. In fact, we have a picture of the Sinai Peninsula, just in case you were wondering. That is a desert. There is not a lot going on other than a lot of sand. And they spend 45 days marching down the Sinai Peninsula in the desert. And they come to Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to meet with God, and Moses is gone for 40 days. So, for those tracking, 85 days in the desert. And God's been providing for them. Uh, While they're in the desert, God's providing manna for them to eat. Uh, He's been providing, in miraculous ways, water for them to drink. But as we come to Exodus 32, the Israelites are living in this tension that some of you can relate to. And here's the tension that they're living with. God is technically providing for them what they need while not giving them what they want or what they think that he's promised to them. You feel that tension? Like technically, they have food, they have water, they're alive, they're out of slavery, but they're living in the middle of nowhere in the desert. And they know that somewhere there's a promised land that is much better than the land they're in now. And so they're in this tension that God's provided what they need, but not what they want. And so we come to Exodus 32, and what I'm going to do today, I'm going to read a little bit of Exodus 32. I'm going to make an observation and an application, and then we're going to read more of it. We're going to do that three times for those of you that want to know exactly what's going to happen this morning. So Exodus 32, starting in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So we're going to stop right there. So, after 40 days of sitting around in the desert, waiting on Moses, they decide they're done. They're done waiting. They're done sitting around. Something needs to happen. There needs to be some movement. No sign of Moses. And so they decide, all right, we've got to make this happen ourselves. And what's interesting is that the exact moments when they are done, when they've decided they can't wait any longer, God is working with Moses on Mount Sinai and giving Moses the 10 rules that will change the world forever. 
We call them the Ten Commandments. But the Israelites can't see that. They don't see the big picture. All they see is their little viewpoint of reality. And in their reality, God isn't at work, nothing's happening, and they have to do something themselves. And this moment where they decide they can't wait any longer and they have to do something themselves becomes the start of a lot of pain and suffering for the Israelite people. In fact, by the time that Exodus 32 ends, 3,000 Israelites will be dead. There'll be a plague on the Israelite people. God will be very displeased. And all of it starts because they're impatient. Which leads me to my first observation for you today, which is patience protects us. How many times has someone gotten into trouble because they were impatient? Any impatient people in the room? Okay, that's a few of you. I'm just going to stand here and wait to see if anyone else (laughs) wants to raise their hand. Get a little impatient. You know, I think our culture just breeds impatient people. American culture is just set up to make us impatient. We live in a culture where we don't have to wait for much of anything. We expect everything instantly, if not sooner. Our food, our mail, our Wi-Fi, our entertainment— We want it all right away. And you know, I think I'm a patient person, and then God generously puts me in a situation to show me how impatient I am. A couple years ago, I was in line at Starbucks, and I pulled up, and there were like 10 cars in front of me, and I was like, okay, it's Starbucks. Not a big deal. This will go fast. And then I waited. And every car, it took like four or five minutes for every car. And you know, at first I thought, okay, well, you know, they messed up an order. Someone ordered something large. But then I quickly realized, oh no, this is just a really small Starbucks. And someone had pulled up behind me and it was a, it was one of those drive-thrus where you couldn't get out. Like once you're in, you're in. And I just, and I continued to get more and more frustrated. And uh, it had only probably been 15, 20 minutes, but I was so, I was just so frustrated. And when I get frustrated, I know I'm a pastor. I know I'm just supposed to like sing songs to Jesus or something. When I, get, when I get frustrated, I resort to sarcasm. I know no one else has that issue. It's just mine. But, um, and so like in my mind, I'm just thinking through all these sarcastic, not clever, but all these sarcastic things that I could say when I get up to the window. Like, hey, like, are you milking the cows back there? Are you waiting for the ice to freeze? Like, again, I didn't say it was clever. I just said it was sarcastic. And so finally I get up to the window and I'm just ready. Like, I don't even know exactly what I'm going to say, but I know it's going to be sarcastic. And someone opens the window and it is a girl that used to be a student in my youth ministry. (laughs) And she says, oh, hey, Pastor John, how are you? And I say, oh, I'm great. (laughs) Just enjoying the day. I was like, wow, I, yeah, I'm impatient. My wife likes to tell stories, and uh, there's the start of the story, and then it becomes an adventure to see how we're going to get to the end of the story. Uh, There's some detours, there's some side points, there's some adventures off, and then sometimes the adventure off, she'll kind of forget where where the end was. And um, I'm more of a, like, start, quick as possible, finish type storyteller. And uh, so early on in our marriage, and maybe occasionally even now, She'll start a story, and I'll just try to finish the story to help her out and be like, oh, so this is what happened. And that never goes well. And God uses that to go, John, you are an impatient person. You can't even let your wife finish a story. And I feel convicted because I'm an impatient person. And yet patience 
protects me. Protects my relationships. Protects my relationship with my wife, with my kids, with my friends. Patience protects me from making decisions that I'll later regret when I, instead of being reactive, I'm reflective and I take a few minutes or a day to breathe and think it through. Patience protects me. And patience is difficult. And yet throughout Scripture, over and over again, we see this theme of patience being an essential part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to live life well. Colossians 3.12, Paul writes, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 1 Corinthians 13, right? We've, we're all f- probably familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. We hear it at weddings. Paul goes on this beautiful, beautiful rant about what love is. Love is kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not proud, is not rude, not self-serving, does not keep track of wrongs. But the first thing that Paul says about love is love is patient. It's the first thing he says. Isn't that interesting? Like Paul's about to talk about what love is. And the first thing he says before anything else, he says, love is patient. The way you love the people around you is by being patient with them. I don't know about you. That's a little convicting. Love is patient. Ephesians 4.12, Paul writes, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. And there's, there's many other verses, but those are just three Talks about the importance of living a patient life. Patience protects us, protects our relationships. It also protects us from making decisions we later regret. When it comes to times in our life where we feel like God is distant and far away, maybe we feel like we're in the desert and God hasn't shown up, God's not doing anything. When we're patient, we show that we trust God. When we're patient, when we're patient, we realize that even though it doesn't feel like God is working in our life, he is very much with us. He's not mad at us. He hasn't abandoned us. And we don't see the big picture. If only the Israelite people, instead of growing impatient, if only they had said to themselves, look, God is at work. We just don't see it. It would have saved themselves a lot of pain and suffering. So from this first point, what would it look like this week to take a small step in patience? Maybe for some of us, there's an opportunity to simply pray, pray a simple prayer each morning. God, since love is patient, help me be patient. Since love is patient, help me be patient. Maybe for others of us who find ourselves in a, a desert season, a season where it feels like God is distant and, and, and not at all doing what we want him to do, maybe the prayer is more along the lines of, God, help me to trust that you're at work even though I don't see it. Patience protects us. Moving on. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So Aaron has them take off their gold earrings, and he makes for them this golden calf. Um, Now, we don't know what that looked like, but we do have a painting in the lobby of what that might have looked like. And I encourage you, if you're watching online all summer, at some point, I hope you get a chance to come to Northbrook in person and check out 
Uh, our creative team did a great job of finding a painting for each story this summer, and so hanging in our lobby uh, is a painting from each week of our True Story series. And um, so we don't know what they look like, but it's, it's fun to, to see what these scenes look like through an artist's eyes. So when it comes to the golden calf, my first question is this. Where did they get the gold? I mean, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. They have nothing but the clothes on their back. They leave Egypt. I don't think there's any jewelry stores out in the desert. And suddenly they have all these gold earrings and gold bracelets. Well, if you're familiar with the story, or if you were here last week, as they left Egypt, not only did they get to just parade out of Egypt, they didn't have to sneak out of Egypt. They just got to walk out of Egypt because of the power of God. The Egyptians just let them go. But on top of that, As a sign of God's power and his goodness, as they left, the Egyptians gave them their gold. The Egyptians gave them their earrings, their bracelets. As a sign of God's power and his goodness, they walked out with these remembrances of the fact that they didn't even have to like sneak out at night. That they were able to boldly walk out of Egypt with these gifts. So the Israelites take the gifts of God and they use them to create an idol to take God's place. Which brings me to my second observation for you today, which is yesterday's blessings can become tomorrow's barriers. Yesterday's blessings can become tomorrow's barriers or idols. Now, I don't think any of us have a golden calf at home that we're worshiping, I hope. But we all have idols. Because an idol is simply anything that distracts us from loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbors ourselves. That's the definition of an idol. Anything that takes our attention away from loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. And sometimes the very blessings of God can become the barriers that keep us from continuing to love God and love our neighbors ourselves. Let me give you an example. You get a job. And it's a blessing from God. And you're thankful for the job, provides for your family. But as time goes on, something happens. Either you start to put your identity in that job. And instead of seeing your value and your worth and who you are in Christ, you start to place your identity and your value in, in, in who you are in your job. And maybe you work a few extra hours. Maybe you focus on your job instead of your family. And what started out as a blessing starts to become an idol. Or maybe God blesses you with a job, but there, there's things going on in your job. There's uncertainty. And so instead of trusting that the same God who gave you the job will take care of you, if you lose the job, the job starts to cause anxiety and fear and frustration. And what started out as a blessing becomes a barrier, becomes an idol, becomes something that's keeping you from living as God intended you to live. Or perhaps you discover a hobby. And that hobby is very life-giving. It's refreshing. Um, It helps you to enjoy the life that God has given you. But at some point, that hobby that started out as a blessing starts to dominate all of your time to a point where you wake up and you realize that the hobby that was a blessing has now become an idol that is taking you away from loving God and your family well. For me, sports has always been that thing. That's a blessing, but that can become an idol in my life. Uh, if you've been around Northbrook, you know I love sports. Um, look, if you don't like sports, I, I apologize that I always use sports analogies. It's just what I know. So you're just going to have to deal with it. Mike will be back next week. <laughs> I love sports. 
Um, ever since I was a little kid, sports has been a big part of my life. Some of my favorite memories when I was young revolve around sports, watching sports, uh, going to sports games, my dad driving me to sports tournaments, and uh, him sitting in the stands. In fact, I think we have a picture of me and my dad at one tournament. And uh, my dad, my, at baseball games, my dad always be in the stands ringing a cowbell every time there was a good play. And uh, those are my favorite memories. And now it's come full circle where now my dad still sits in the stands and rings the cowbell, but now it's for his grandkids, my kids. And I've been fortunate enough to coach each one of my kids in baseball, softball, and basketball. And uh, those are some of the most, uh, my, my favorite memories. And I think as time goes on, they will continue to be some of my most favorite memories have happened on those baseball, those softball, diamonds. And I realize that that is a blessing. That is a blessing from God that I'm able, that sports has become that thing that has brought me so many great memories with my parents, my kids. But I'm also aware that sports can become an idol. Because here's the thing, there's no end to sports in the U.S. Like, there's no end to watching sports. There's no end to playing sports. I ref and I umpire sports. I mean, there's no end. And so I have to be careful because I know myself and, and, and the thing that is a blessing can easily, if I let it, become a barrier, an idol that distracts me from loving my family and loving God well. The blessing can become a barrier. I'll give you one more example. A young person in the room, God's given you a a gift or a talent. Maybe you're very athletic, or maybe uh, you're musically inclined. Maybe you you can sing, you play an instrument. Um, Maybe you're an artist. Maybe God's gifted you in the fine arts. Maybe you just have a really sharp mind. School's easy for you, and that is that's a blessing. That's a gift from God. And as you develop that. You honor and you glorify God. As you work at that thing, that craft that you're good at, like that honors and glorifies God. But here's the thing, that blessing can also become a barrier. When that thing begins to define who you are, when you start to find your identity and being good at that thing instead of your identity and who God says you are, well, then that thing stops being a blessing and it starts becoming a barrier or an idol. Or perhaps maybe you start to get really good at that thing and so you start to feel better than everyone else that isn't good at that thing. And again, the blessing has now become an idol that's keeping you from loving the people around you well. Yesterday's blessings can become tomorrow's barriers. So what would it look like this week to evaluate your life And see if there's anything in your life that used to be a blessing, but now it's starting to become a barrier or an idol, something that's keeping you from living as God has intended you to live. And maybe there's an opportunity this week to offer that thing back to God and ask God, take some time, ask God, what would it look like to turn that idol back into a blessing? Continuing on. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. I have seen, by the way, This is kind of like a marital moment between God and Moses. Did you notice what God says to Moses? He says, go down because your people. Suddenly they are Moses' people, not God's people. (laughs) 
I have seen these people. The Lord said to Moses, they are sick enough people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. So Moses kind of has a conversation with God and talks God out of destroying the people. Now, moving down to verse 19. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. Moses was the first person to break all Ten Commandments at once. (laughs) And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such a great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. There's so much in this chapter so much we could talk about. But here's where I want to focus. Here's, as I read this chapter and over, this, this, this is what stood out to me. By the end of this chapter, as I said, 3,000 people are dead. There's a plague on the Israelite people. It's a mess. God's angry, disappointed. Moses is disappointed. Moses is angry. And I just have to wonder if all of that could have been avoided if one person would have had the courage to say no. I just wonder how different that would have been if the people had come to Aaron, Moses' brother, who's the second in command, if they'd come to Aaron, they'd said, hey, make us gods, and Aaron would have said, give me 24 hours to think about that. Instead of reacting, if Aaron had just said, whoa, ah, that's a big request, just give me 24 hours to think about that. And then 24 hour later, hours later, he would have come back and said, all right, guys, here's, here's, here's the thing. I, I've prayed about it. I've thought about it. I understand why you're frustrated. We've been out here 85 days, 40 days sitting at this mountain. It's frustrating. I understand. But as I've been praying, I, I couldn't help but think about the fact that we were frustrated in Egypt, in slavery, and Yahweh, the God we couldn't see, sent plagues in the Egyptians and eventually got us out of Egypt. And then we came to the Red Sea and we were frustrated. We thought we were going to die. The Israelites were chasing, or the Egyptians were chasing us. And Yahweh, the, the God we couldn't see, parted the Red Sea for us. And then we got out into the desert and we, we, were, we didn't know where our food was going to come from. We didn't know where our water was going to come from. And Yahweh, the God we couldn't see, provided food and water. And so I get your frustration, but I have to believe that Yahweh, the same God that did all those things, is still with us. And something's going on, something, he's, he's working somehow. And for all those reasons, I, I will not build an idol for you to worship. I don't know if that would have made a difference, but I have to believe it might have. But we'll never know. Because Aaron didn't do that. Instead, Aaron gave into the pressure that all leaders face of wanting to please the people he was leading. Which brings me to my last observation this morning. Leadership is sometimes disappointing people. Now, before some of you just kind of tune me out and go, oh, well, I'm not a leader. I guess this doesn't apply to me. Let me be real clear. If you're a follower of Jesus in the room, you are a leader. Because leadership in its most basic form is influence with others. That's what leadership is. It's influence with others. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you have, you have influence. 
Parents, you have influence. People that go to work, you have influence. If you have friends, you have influence. If you have neighbors, you have influence. If you're alive and breathing, you have influence. You are a leader on some level. And leadership, when it's done well, will disappoint the people you're leading occasionally. I think we've all experienced on some level knowing that if we make the right decision, it's going to disappoint someone. Parents of toddlers understand this real well. But we all understand. And sometimes we feel that pressure to just make a decision we know isn't best just to keep the peace and keep everyone happy. But to lead well requires being willing to disappoint people. Back in 2019, uh, I'd been in ministry for 13 years. I felt like I had a good understanding of what it meant to be a good leader. Um, I was getting my master's in Christian leadership. And if you had asked me back in 2019, John, do you understand what it takes to be a good leader? I would have said, oh, yeah. And then 2020 came. And uh, 2020 almost broke me. Like, I almost left ministry because I couldn't keep everyone happy. No matter what decision I made, people were disappointed, people were angry, people were frustrated with me, and I, I just couldn't take it. And I was talking to God one day, and I was like, God, I just want to love people. And God said, no, you just want everyone to like you. There's a difference. Ouch. See, loving people well means sometimes we're going to have to disappoint them. Leading people well means sometimes... We're going to have to disappoint them. Jesus understood this idea. Jesus comes to earth. He's perfect, fully man, fully God. And yet Jesus disappointed a lot of people. Disappointed the religious leaders, sure, but he also disappointed his friends, his disciples. They thought he was coming to earth and he was going to overthrow the Roman Empire and establish this Jewish empire that was going to rule the world. And he disappointed them. He disappointed John the Baptist, his own cousin, John sat in prison and he sent, you know, he had already proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah. And then, and then John sends guys to, to Jesus and John says, hey, ask Jesus if he's the guy. Why would John do that? Well, because he was disappointed. Jesus hadn't got him out of prison. And eventually John would be killed. See, Jesus disappointed people. Why? Because Jesus knew that to love the people well meant not to do what they wanted, but instead, he had a mission to die on a cross. So Jesus was willing to disappoint people to love them well. Here at Northbrook, I've been able to watch for 11 years as the leadership team, the, the elders, and Mike. I've had to make some tough decisions. And, and to be clear, our leadership team is not perfect. No, no, no leadership team is. Uh, Pastor Mike's not perfect. You can tell him I said that. But our leadership team is reflective and prayerful. And I've watched as our leadership team here has sometimes disappointed people because they, they didn't just give the easy answer. They, they gave what they thought was the right answer. And in being willing to say no, they've been accused of being lazy or controlling or unloving. But I think that's the price of leading people well loving people well is sometimes we disappoint them. So the question out of this third point is, is there an area of your life where loving the people around you well may mean disappointing them? 
Is there an area of your life where maybe you've just been trying to keep the peace and keep everyone happy? And, and, but in the back of your mind, you, you know that to love them well in this season would mean that you actually step in and disappoint them. So as we close, what's your next step? I encourage you to just find one thing from this message and take one small step this week. Maybe for some of us, it's praying a very simple prayer. Father, help me to be patient because love is patient. Maybe for others of us, there's an opportunity to evaluate our life and and see if there's an idol in our life that started out as a blessing but has become an idol. And maybe this week, work to turn that idol back into a blessing. Or maybe for others of us, there's an opportunity this week to love the people around us well, even if it means disappointing them. The Israelite people could have had such a better story if they would have done those things. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your love for us that is new every morning. I thank you for your graciousness. Father, I pray as we, as we move into summer, would you help us to be intentional with the way that we spend our time, uh, intentional with the way that we love you and love the people around us. May we, may, may we make the most of these days. Uh, may we honor you with the way we live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.